The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to do is read for you from Acts 6, the account of Stephen, one of the first servants that we read about last time, chosen to assist the apostles, 6, 8 through 15 is what I'll read. Then there's a very long sermon that Stephen preaches, the first of many sermons that are in the book of Acts. Well, now it's actually the second because Peter's Pentecost sermon was the first, but here's a long sermon from Stephen that goes into the near the end of chapter 7, and I'm going to pick up after the sermon and read also 754 through 60. Listen to to this account of God's servant, Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes and came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." Then Peter delivers his long sermon to tell them about their disobedience against God and his outreaches to them through the prophets, ending with the words in 753, you who delivered the law as, or received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. And we read, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
When he said this, he fell asleep. This is the Word of God. Death inevitably reveals who and what we really are. John Owen, the brilliant Puritan theologian, lay critically ill in his last days of life. He wrote a letter to a friend which began saying this, I am still in the land of the living. But then his wife said he paused and wrote, I must rather say I am in the land of the dying. But I have every hope in Christ Jesus soon to enter the glorious land of the living. Contrast that kind of hope in death to the French cynical philosopher Voltaire who cursed Christianity in his writings and had no concept of God, the true God. As Voltaire neared death, he wrote once, I am abandoned by God and man. I would give anyone half of what I am worth for six months of life. And then after living it, I could go to hell. In Acts 6 and 7, a gifted preacher named Stephen rose from the ranks of the seven original deacons with God doing truly remarkable things through him, wonders of healing, powerful speaking like unto that of the apostles themselves. And we see him killed by a mob, they really were a mob of temple authorities who made him into the first Christian martyr. I think I've mentioned in a previous week that the word for martyr means a witness. Stephen died as a witness by his death, bearing testimony to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And his death certainly revealed who and what he really was, a man whose heart beat with the fullness of Christ and the Spirit of Christ right to the very last. I put the question, will we prove faithful to Christ unto death in any manner similar to that of Stephen? Chances are very good that none of us are going to die with people raining large rocks down upon our bodies. Chances are, many of us, most of us, will die in bed. But however we happen to meet the end of our lives, will we do it calm, thankful to God, trusting in the work of God in Christ, and without any terror, even eager for what we know to be ahead? Today, as I said, we are covering a very large portion of material, the end of Acts 6 and all of 7, leaving out a large sermon there in the middle. It's an important sermon, and I encourage you to read it. Stephen's just a short compass of the whole history of Israel and what God was doing through the prophets is very worthwhile. Consider that your homework assignment today. But I would first of all have you see how Stephen stood out from a crowd of other witnesses to Christ by remarkable gifts of the Holy Spirit, by the fullness of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and the very Christ-likeness of his life and character. 
I would have you see what the eyes of unbelief could see in a dying Christian. What did the eyes of unbelief see in a dying Christian? Acts 6, 8 calls him a man full of grace and power, merging in his one personality, a great strength and yet a great winsomeness, a great attractiveness. I don't know what to call that other than likeness to Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelled in this man, and it showed in his actions, in his words, in the miraculous things God bestowed on him to do, and in the whole manner of his death. Now, you ought to notice something that would allow you to read a little bit into this text. Stephen worshipped or was particularly active at one synagogue in Jerusalem, And we find that that was the synagogue in verse 9 of the freedmen where people called Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia in Asia met to worship. In other words, here was a Jerusalem synagogue that was mostly for outsiders, for people who didn't feel that they were the in crowd in Jerusalem. And they would gather with folks from their own territory, maybe more familiar with culture and language and so on, let me tell you something you probably don't realize. The city of Tarsus in Asia was in the territory called Cilicia. It's almost a certainty that Saul from Tarsus would have worshipped in this synagogue and would have seen this as a worship home. We read here that there were people there in that synagogue disputing with Stephen, arguing with him about points of Jewish law or prophecy, and certainly the new preaching of this Christ came up, and that they could not contend against Stephen. He was so strong in his presentation of things. I'm not giving you something wildly imaginative at all to say it seems probable that Saul of Tarsus was one of those who contended with Stephen. And the text would seem to have us believe that Stephen won the debates. With Saul, the great mind, you know what we learn about him later on, that he had a mind that was so powerful and so logical and so able to present things that he basically could almost mow down any intellectual opponent. And yet it would seem that Saul met his match in Stephen. What would this man have become if he had lived a longer life? Well, we read here how he is on trial, much like Jesus himself. He's being unjustly accused. He had false witnesses brought against him, a situation where you would grow increasingly agitated and angry and defensive, and you would get red in the face, and you would interrupt and say, no, no, I didn't say that. And it seems to say that Stephen was serene about it, He was calm in the midst of it. 6.15 tells us his face was like unto the face of an angel. Now that's an expression, of course. Nobody knows what an angel's face looks like. But the point of the author is he was poised. He was unruffled. The Spirit of God had taken possession of him and the grace of God was in him. And it actually seemed to almost radiate from his whole countenance. Have you met Christians like that? I sure have. 
quite often among the older, more mature Christians, and they're usually the ones who have become humbled over the years, and they don't realize the, the grace that radiates from their lives, the calmness that's able to maybe speak to those who are younger and say, well, now calm down. God's on his throne. God's still in control. He's just as sovereign today as he was yesterday. And that dignity that comes from mature Christianity shining through a personality is among us. Those who bear it best are usually the ones who would not see it in themselves. But unbelief can't comprehend this. You know, they think if you're facing difficulties in life, if you're facing tragedies or or being accused or having to defend yourself, you ought to be, you know, all frazzled and all angry and coming apart and losing your composure. And they gape amazed at the hope of a Christian who can be calm and depend on their God in the midst of such strife. Well, secondly, that's what unbelief saw, but now, secondly, notice what Stephen saw. What did the eyes of faith behold or see in this passage that I've read to you from Acts 6 primarily and into at the end of Acts 7? He answered charges calmly, logically, eloquently, with a great sermon that I've mentioned that you should read here, and charged with blasphemy against two things. He was charged with blasphemy against the temple and against the law of Moses. Now, those were the two sacred institutions. If you said anything bad about the temple or the law, you were in trouble. Stephen, in fact, if you would read his words, did not insult the temple and did not, and certainly did not insult the law. What he did insult was the fact that these people had never heard it. They had never understood that God was leading them to conclude that he was bringing his son into history as the fulfillment of what the temple and its sacrifices and the law and its regulations looked for and expected. And he said, you people, basically, if you want to summarize a chapter-long sermon, you people have missed the point. And your forefathers have missed the point. And when they heard this, they were enraged. Truth that you can't invade hurts, and these people were angry. And so we read about in the Acts 7, 55 and following there, Stephen sort of looking right past all these angry faces and shouting voices, looking right past to see a scene opened in heaven. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man at the right hand of God. I believe Stephen was given a vision of what awaited him in the next minutes of his life. It was a vision of great splendor. It was a vision of the one most important person to him that would make all the difference in life and eternity. It was a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now that in itself is significant because Jesus as judge of history, as we read in other scriptures, sits at the right hand of God. But here he was standing in this vision to welcome his child like the advocate welcoming the one 
for whom he died and the one for whom he offered himself. Here was Stephen in a kangaroo court of sorts, not really even an official trial, accused of all these things, angry faces, shouting at him, heaping abuses and curses on him, and he looked past that earthly courtroom right into heaven's court. And in heaven's court, he was declared innocent in the blood of Christ. Christ who he saw welcoming him. I was 11 years old in March 25, 1961. It was actually the 65th birthday of my paternal grandmother, Marguerite Rogers. She was in a hospital because she was in the last stages of major cancer on the morning of her 65th birthday. Nurses told my grandfather and my father that at 3 o'clock in the morning that day, they had the call button pressed from my grandmother's room and they went to see what she wanted at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the nurse later told them that she was sitting up in bed and she had a very serene and beautiful smile on her face and this cancer had been pretty agonizing. But she looked young, lovely, She was smiling, and she said to the nurse, Look, do you see him? And the nurse said, Who, Mrs. Rogers? Nobody's here. Oh, no. Do you see Jesus? Do you see the angels who are with him? And, of course, the nurse, being used to dealing with someone maybe half awake or still dreaming, calmed her down and put her back to bed. Fifteen minutes later, there was no call button, but the nurse stopped by. My grandmother was in heaven. I believe God gave her a sight of her Lord. Now, she was a no-nonsense Mennonite farm wife. Let me tell you, she was nobody for dreams and visions and ecstasies, as practical a woman as ever lived. But she said, do you see him? Do you see the angels with him? Ladies and gentlemen, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Who can say how God might possibly even comfort us at our passage to glory? Many of these kinds of incidences have been recorded, and I'm not here to tell you that this is necessarily the normal experience or that every Christian is going to see what Stephen saw or my grandmother saw. But I do believe what the ungodly, what the unbeliever cannot possibly understand, that whether we would see that or not, our position in death is that of being welcomed home by a Savior, the bridegroom who stands to welcome his bride, who welcomes us into his arms, and of whom the Scripture says we shall be like him when we see him face to face. Thirdly and finally, I would have you hear what Stephen said to his Lord who welcomed him. Verse 59 of chapter 7. There's interesting echoes here, you'll you'll realize immediately, of things that Jesus himself said on the cross. It was probably very conscious on Stephen's part. He, He may well have witnessed the cross. He certainly was aware what happened. And in Acts 7.59, he says, Lord 
Jesus, receive my spirit. He spoke that as he knew that in moments, large rocks would be smashing his body. I'm not going to go into a long description of what stoning was. But let me tell you, if you have an idea in your mind that people picked up fist-sized small rocks and tossed them, that wasn't it at all. They often pushed you off a small cliff first where you lay broken or some bones broken at the base of a 15-foot cliff or so and then stood above that and picked up the biggest things they could pick up or that two men could pick up and dropped huge rocks on you until your body was entirely battered and you were dead. We know that this same Sanhedrin council needed the permission of Pilate to kill Jesus. They did not have authority to execute anyone. And notice here that they don't go looking for that authority. They just carry out an execution. They were a mob. They were a lynch mob. And so they dropped those rocks on Stephen, and he died in one of the most gruesome ways a person could die. And here are the echoes of Jesus' own dying words, except remember Jesus addressed his father when he said, Father, receive my spirit. What did this man say? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As a Christian, he saw that the Son and the Father were one. And he who was his Savior and Redeemer would receive him. And I say to you that any man or woman who can die with words like that on their lips, who knows to whom their soul belongs, gives us the clear evidence of redeeming grace in their life. The earliest religion I ever learned of any kind whatsoever was the prayer, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I can't tell you how many times I lay in bed and thought about that. Could I die? That that prayer really shook me. Could I die before the morning? Me, a six-year-old child or seven or whatever I was. I thought about that a lot of times. And I prayed the prayer two or three times to make sure God knew I was trusting him to deal with me. Let me tell you, I'm convinced today for all the learning that has gone on between that early prayer and today, there is the bare minimum of trust that you need to declare your faith and spend eternity with the Lord who indeed can keep your soul. Finally, I'd have you hear Acts 7.60 here. As Stephen fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin to their account. Here again, echo of the cross. He knew Jesus said the same thing. But he was saying it not as a perfect man as Jesus did, but as a sinner, saved by grace, being killed by other sinners. And he was saying, Lord, I'm just a debtor to your grace. I'm full of sin. And I could have ended up like these men, full of hate, trying to destroy people who oppose me, Don't hold it against them, Lord. I'm no better than them. In fact, I wonder if he thought in his mind or knew, he probably didn't, that he actually had the big advantage over them by knowing that his next step was into eternity where they continued to live in a hell of hatred and rebellion against God. 
little note here as we close. Luke obviously recorded sharp details of this event. He had an eyewitness. This is an eyewitness account, obviously, in the details that it records. Luke wasn't there. Who is the eyewitness? His name is here. And Saul was standing by, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. You know, I even wonder as I look back to chapter 6 there, when in the temple of the Cilicians or the synagogue of the Cilicians, they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit of which he was speaking, and they secretly instigated men who said things against him. Who secretly instigated? Was Saul part of that? There would be no surprise whatsoever if he was. Because this Saul of Tarsus, who became, of course, the great apostle Paul, at this hour was a bitter hater of Christ and of Christians. And in Acts 8.3, he shows up, launched on a campaign to haul Christians out of their places of worship and execute them or take them to jail. He wanted to stamp out Christianity root and branch. I believe God's Word is giving us a prelude for what will come very shortly. The conversion of Saul. I believe it is showing us how there was burned into the mind and the memory of Saul, this man who he could not withstand in debate, this man who was so calm in the face of death, this man who spoke words about the prophets that Saul could not unravel or or dispute with. And Saul was struggling and kicking in his mind against what he remembered when he watched Stephen's bloody death. And he was fighting a losing battle with his own mind. As he went house to house and hauled out people, more and more people, maybe not quite as eloquent as Stephen, but more and more people who knew how to die. Because that's what a Christian knows how to do. Sometimes it's said in a little bit of a joking way, of ministers that there are three things we're supposed to be able to do on a moment's notice. Pray, preach a sermon, and die. Well, let me tell you, Christian, the last one applies to you, and so does the first one. You may not be able to preach a sermon, but on a moment's notice, if you know Jesus Christ and he lives in you by his Holy Spirit and your hope of heaven is real and alive, at any moment, should the car do something strange or the truck run the light or whatever might happen, you should be one of those people who know how to die with calm hope and with even a smile of eagerness for the Savior who's ready to welcome you. Your death will reveal the answer as to what kind of a person you are. Are you a man or woman ready to die? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is already alive in you, and his grace is already filling you. And in the ups and downs and the tragedies and the opposition and the anger of other people in this life, There's something calm. There's a death-defying hope which endures anything that can come at your mortal body. 
I tell you that God's promise to his people who know how to die is expressed in the words of a hymn. I'll close with it today. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert that soul to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, never forsake. Thanks be to God. Those are the words of our Redeemer and Savior. Amen. Father, we pray today to be a people ready to die. We love this world. We love our lives. You've given us purposeful things to do, and we would not abandon them a moment sooner than you want. But Lord God, may we be renewed in the understanding that we're only temporarily here. And the eternal destination you have for us is something far beyond, far beyond all that can be imagined. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to his table with eagerness to know that he by the Spirit is here in our midst. We seek the forgiveness of our sin. We seek the renewal of our hope that we may be your people prepared to die. For Jesus' sake, amen.